Good morning. How awesome is this? Right? It's insane. And I'll be honest, I also am kind of doubly just think this is so cool. I didn't know if like 20 of you were going to show up, but you filled this place. This is awesome. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us. And before we start, I just wanted to say a couple of really quick things. First off, I want to give a shout out to Joel and his crew and to Rasta. I thought Rasta was here somewhere. Yeah, they, uh, they scrambled and worked really hard to uh, get it like this for us this morning. Uh, it did not look like this three days ago, I promise you. Um, in fact, this wasn't even hung three days ago. And uh, this is a big, heavy thing. So um, just big thanks. Rasta, you were here this morning working, and so I so appreciate it. Um, and I also just want to give a quick shout out uh, to my wife and my boys, Micah and Eli, who spent a good chunk of their day yesterday setting up all of these chairs and helping us get in place. And so give it up for Micah and Eli. Um, so for those of you who maybe are joining us, do we have any first timers? Any visitors who are here for the first time? Rasta. Oh, a Rasta. Awesome. Well, first off, just thank you so much for joining us. Uh, obviously, this is not how we normally do it, um, but uh, really glad that you guys are here and have joined us. My name is Tyler. I'm the worship and arts director here at Obi Joyful, and Scott, during his, while he's away on his sabbatical, he was kind enough to ask me to uh, speak this morning, and I'm honored to do so and excited to do so. Uh, please be praying for me because I'm also, uh, it's been a while since I've preached and I'm, I'm quite nervous. Um, I won't lie. Um, and so what we have been doing, what, what, just to catch some of you guys who are maybe joining us for the first time or haven't been here much lately, um, uh, just to catch you up on where we are, we, have, we are about in week seven or eight of a series that we're calling Changed Miraculous Encounters with Jesus. And really what this series aims to do is, you know, if you have any history within the church, you have heard endless Sunday school stories and sermons and messages and Bible studies on the miracles that Christ performed, how they were an affirmation of Christ's divinity, of his power, of what he could do. And really what we want to do in this series is, is yes, acknowledge the power of the miracle that Christ performed, but really take a look at the impact it had on those who experienced it. How the people who had this encounter with Jesus through this miracle, how they were fundamentally, their lives were fundamentally altered. And we see a broad range of responses to the miracles that Christ performed. We see anger, we see indignation, we see joy, we see uh, people uh, coming into great uh, uh, bouts of faith, but we also see um, you know, the, quite the opposite of that. And so we're just looking at... Um, at what people's responses are to these miracles of Christ. And so with that, we find ourselves in the story that we just heard out of Luke, chapter 17, the story of 10 lepers being cleansed, which is sort of an odd, it's a bit of an odd story, and it's only, it only exists in the, it's, it's only told in the uh, Gospel of Luke. And so um, we're going to go ahead and dive right in. Would you pray with me really quickly? Uh, Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us, that is reliable, that we can rely on it, that it is useful for us. And we thank you, Lord, for um, 
for this story of the 10 lepers. And we ask that you would teach us something through this uh, story. Uh, We ask that you would open our ears this morning uh, and that this would be a continuation of our worship. That this time of hearing from your word, of studying your word, would be a continuation of the worship that we have already engaged in corporately. We love you, Lord. We thank you for how much you love us and how good you are to us. And it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, So I grew up in a small house over on Sopris Avenue that um, before we lived there, there were two brothers who kind of came into some fame as skiers in the late 80s and early 90s who had grown up in that house, Chris and Casey Puckett. They both went off to the Olympics and uh, did pretty well for themselves as ski racers. They lived in the house that I grew up in on Sopris Avenue. And, um, and they came back, they, they came back when they were in their prime of their career, they came back to Crested Butte to do a two-day intensive lesson. And my dad was kind enough to sign me up for it. And I was probably about 11 years old. And, um, and I'll tell you, at the time, I was absolutely crazy uh, about skiing. All I wanted to do was ski. When we were, whenever we were here, I would spend every possible day. I remember I, 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 we would come and we'd be here for like three weeks in the winter, and I'd ski every day of the three weeks to the point where my boot linings were soaking wet from the sweat, and we couldn't get, I couldn't get it out, and I'd just have wet boot liners on day 20. It was really gross. But anyways, I, I absolutely was just passionate about skiing. I loved skiing, and I thought I knew what it was to be a skier. And I don't know if you guys can relate to this, but at the time, I thought that to ski really well, you put your feet absolutely like glued together, and then you kind of wiggled like Stein Erickson. Uh, because in the 70s, that was how the awesome folks did it. And they would like hold their arms out, and they'd like do that. So that's how I skied, and this eleven-year-old, like going down paradise, like I'm the coolest guy ever, and um, and and so I go and I do this lesson with the puckets, and kind of at the very beginning, first day, first morning, we uh, get on to Houston of all trails, challenging, challenging Houston, and and they say, Tyler, here's what we want you to do, because they had seen me do my noodle, and they said, uh, we want you to stand shoulder length apart, and we want you to go straight. And then we want you to take your right foot and just twist, tilt it like that and apply some pressure and let you see what happens. And I did it. And for any of you guys who probably know where this is going, my ski carved, right? And then I did the opposite and it carved the other way. And all of a sudden, I had this realization of I didn't know what skiing was until right then. That's what skiing was. Skiing is carving, And I thought I knew, I was passionate about this thing, and I thought I was such an expert. And in this moment, in this instant, my entire perspective on what skiing was changed. And to this day, when I ski, I want to carve, and carving is the most wonderful feeling in the world, right? Um, So anyhow, uh, just an opening little story to share with you. This story out of Luke is really a story about that type of a realization, that type of before and after moment where this individual has an experience and everything is different. The context for his life changes completely 
from this point forward, from this exposure forward. So let's dive right in. Um, Really what I want to do this morning, if it's okay with you guys, is really just kind of dive in and unpack this thing verse by verse by verse, because really I think there's a lot more power. God's God's word has a lot more power uh, to speak to us than I do, and so I just want to see what scripture has to share with us this morning. So we're going to pick it up In verse 11, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along in the region between Galilee and Samaria. Um, Why does he start this way? Why does Luke start this way? On his way to Jerusalem, I want you to take a special note of what that connotates. The fact that that Luke says he's on his way to Jerusalem is not an accident. Luke is saying... Jesus is on his way to his death. He is on his way to the time when he is going to be turned over to the authorities. He's going to be tortured. He's going to be crucified. He's going to die. He's going to be buried. And on the third day, he's going to come back. This all happens in Jerusalem, and he's on his way there right now. It is not an accident that this is framed as um, within the, uh, the, the vision that we see of Christ on his way to Jerusalem to do this great work. This isn't just a, like a note about his itinerary. Luke wasn't just thinking, I would let these folks know. It's not an accident that it was included. Um, but geographically speaking, I did want to let you guys know, scholars will kind of point out the curiosity of this setting, and they'll say, in essence, the area, the, the region between Galilee and Samaria, it's not on the way to Jerusalem. That doesn't make sense. It, it's just to say that he's on the way to Jerusalem and yet he's here, those two things don't go together. This region where he is in is not, it's, it's out of the way, right? Let's move on. Verse 13, we have the 10 lepers and they cry out, Jesus, master, have mercy. Let's take a look at who these guys are. Again, if you have any sort of a history of, uh, within the church, you've heard how leprosy, is, uh, was really viewed culturally at the time, specifically leprosy, as a judgment that God passed upon his people for some sort of a past sin, right? And so if you struggled, if you, if you, if you were battling leprosy, if you had leprosy, it was a reflection upon your worth as a person in the culture, in the society at the time. And they said, you know, the, the, the view was, you have done something wrong, God is displeased with you, That's why you have it. That's why you struggle with it. So these 10 men struggled, you can be sure, struggled with shame. Whereas everyone around them, everyone in their village was a sinner, these guys actually like literally wore the sign of their uh, sin on their shoulder, right? They dealt with physical pain. Leprosy is a painful disease. You're losing limbs, you're losing fingers, you're losing toes, They dealt with emotional pain. I can't help but wonder if they didn't have to wrestle with the question of, is everything that people says about me, is everything that people are saying about me, is that actually true? Is God displeased with me? Is this punishment? Is this punitive action taken upon me? They dealt with spiritual pain. They were excluded from the temple. They were excluded from corporate worship. And they dealt with relational pain. Due to their being declared unclean, they were shunned and cast out. So these were men that you can bet were unraveled. They were undone men. 
Now let's look at Jesus. At this point, Jesus has been involved in his earthly ministry long enough, you can bet he was as close to a rock star evangelist as there was. Word traveled fast about who he was. And so the lepers, you can imagine, if somebody of great fame or power came to Crested Butte, we would know about it. Word would travel fast and we would know about it. You can bet word traveled fast that Jesus was coming to this little no-name village in the middle of nowhere, right? These men knew that he was coming. And I can't help but wonder, now, now lepers, as lepers, they would have been basically cast out and shunned to the, to the edge of town, but I can't help but wonder if they might have strategically placed themselves in Jesus's way. They knew he was coming, and they placed themselves in such a place where they would be among the first to encounter him as he came to town. And we can see that they already have some modicum of trust in who Christ is because they are looking for him. They are anticipating his arrival. And so what do they do? As he approaches, they cry out, Jesus, Master, have mercy upon us. And I would encourage you guys, just think about it for a moment that, you know, Christ, or or that that these lepers, leprosy has a devastating impact on the, can have a devastating impact on the vocal cords. So it may have been this, you know, as much as they could have done to cry out, but it may have just been this hoarse kind of whisper of Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And, 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 And then something else, that as I was thinking about it, I just, I just wondered about, I can't help but wonder if like the 10 of them as they gathered together, they kind of agreed on what they were going to say. You know, they said, we're going to just say, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us, and we're going to all do it together. You know, on the count of three, here we go, right? Why do they say what they say? It's a very simple statement. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They don't come before him with a litany of things that they want to be healed for. They don't say, heal us of our leprosy. They just say, have mercy on us. They know that Jesus knows what they are asking. They know that Jesus knows their afflictions, their sickness, their illness. He knows, and they know he knows. Right? The Greek translation of the word master that they use there is epistates, which could mean overseer. In in, in the Greek, it means overseer or superintendent. But in really in New Testament usage, is often a reference to Christ. So they are calling Christ and saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. They are declaring that Christ is the Messiah, that that Jesus is the Christ. They don't, and, and, and here's what I love, they don't give a bunch of reasons why they should be healed. They don't, they don't say, heal me because of this. Heal me because of this. Heal me because of this. They just say, heal me. You know, have mercy. Right? They come to Jesus as the men that they are, which is to say, they come to Jesus as men who are unraveled and undone and don't have anything to offer. Right? But, much like the woman who was bleeding for 12 years that we heard about a couple weeks back, they were willing to take that step of faith and reveal themselves to the community that had outcast them, that had shunned them, 
and why? I wonder if it's because they were confident. If they were confident, not so much in themselves, they were confident in who Christ was. Jesus' response can seem like a bit of an odd one in verse 14. Go see the priest. Is he abdicating his responsibility? Is he abdicating his power? Is he saying he can't do it? Why does he ask them to go see the priest? And there's three reasons, really, that I can think of. One, Jesus is maintaining and upholding the Levitical law that's laid out in Leviticus 14. That basically says the priest is the arbiter, they are the judge of what is clean and unclean when it comes to leprosy. Right? So he is upholding that Levitical law. They have, the, these priests have in the culture and at the time, they have the power to declare one clean or unclean. They have the power to welcome someone into the community or to kick them out of the community. Right? Two, secondly, it was a proof of what they had just declared. They had just declared the authority of Christ as the Messiah. And just as the theme of the book of James in the New Testament is about living out one's faith, Jesus is saying, in essence, you're right to call me Jesus. You are right to call me Messiah and to trust in me for your healing and to lift up your voice. Now do the next best thing and obey me in this command and go and see the priest. And then lastly, I think it, can't, it was probably a proof to the ruling religious authorities at the time. The priests knew these men to be sure. They knew these lepers, the priests did. And to be presented with a miraculously healed man was a testament to the power of Jesus and the authority that he had. So Christ is not denying his abilities. He's not abdicating his role. He's upholding Levitical law that has been in place for hundreds of years And now look at the response of the men. They say, okay. And they go and they do it. And I can't help but wonder, there may have been some amount of grumbling amongst them. It doesn't say, obviously. But you know, if I were one of these guys, I'd probably be thinking, you know, I've been to the priest. He was the guy who kicked me out of the community. I'm not particularly interested in going to see him again. I asked you to have mercy on me. And really what I'm asking is for you to heal me. Why are you telling me to go see this guy? That's how I would probably think when faced with an answer like that. But instead, these guys say, okay, we'll go. They're living out what they had just declared about Jesus. All 10 of them. And they go to the priest. And as they do so, that is when they are healed. That is a picture, you guys, of the gospel. That they act in faith and Jesus heals them. That their faith in the power and work and person of Christ, as they turn and put that faith into action, they are healed. That Jesus rescues them. They didn't notice, they didn't do anything to earn their healing. They didn't didn't offer anything And Jesus didn't say to them, you're too far gone. Instead, Jesus sends them on their way and heals them. And then one of them, 
upon, upon seeing that he was healed, the, Samarian, the Samaritan, he turns back and he worships God. He worships Jesus. Something occurred to me this week as I was thinking about that. Why was he the one of the ten that noticed and that turned back? Did all ten of them notice and the nine didn't, they didn't want to say anything? What, what was that all about? And I have a theory, and I know what you guys are thinking. Tyler, you didn't go to seminary, so I don't know that I trust you, and that's okay. This is just my thought, all right? I'm not saying that this is the case, but I can't help but wonder. The Samaritan didn't have a temple to go to. He worshiped at a different temple that wasn't there. So when he is told to go see the priest, I wonder, when they are all told to go see the priest, I wonder if the nine Jews are like, yeah, we know where to go. And the Samaritan is thinking, where, what do I do now? What do I do now? So he doesn't have the baggage of exactly what the end game is that the nine do, right? The nine know exactly what they're going towards. Well, they hope they know what, exactly what they're going towards. The Samaritan, maybe he doesn't have that baggage in his mind. He's just wondering, what do I do now? And that opens up his eyes to be able to see that he has been cleansed. He has been washed clean. And so he turns back and he praises Jesus with a loud voice. A loud voice. That is evidence of the cleansing, of the healing that he has received. Because like I said, those vocal cords were likely destroyed. They're decimated. And yet all of a sudden he is able to cry out. He is unashamed and he is unabashed. And he falls on his face at Jesus' feet. And I, I just, I love the picture of it. You know, they're walking away. He notices, you know, it's a hot day. He notices that he is cleansed, that he has been healed. And he turns around and he runs to Jesus. And for whatever reason, the image that struck me was this idea of like the sun shining through the dust as it is kicked up as he runs to Jesus. And he gets down on his feet and falls on his face before him. His reaction is anything but subdued. And he gives thanks. And across the board, when I looked at resources and commentaries and listened to other messages about this particular verse... Across the board, consistently, the message was, this is a story about the power of thankfulness and gratitude. Because that's what the Samaritan does. And don't get me wrong, I want to I encourage you guys about the great power and active faith that practicing thankfulness and gratitude has in the life, in the Christian life. But I think if we think that this story is all about the power of gratitude, that kind of misses the mark of what this is about. This is a story of nine men whose lives were fundamentally changed and altered emotionally, physically, and relationally. And this is the story of one man whose life was fundamentally changed spiritually. His eyes are opened to something that he had never seen before. And he had that ski carving moment on Houston where all of a sudden everything, there is a before and there is an after and the Samaritan comes to this realization of everything is now different. 
Because in that moment, as they are sent off to the priest, the Samaritan realizes who the true priest is. That the priest isn't the arbiter of what is unclean and clean. The true priest is the one who can do the cleansing. And that's Jesus. That is the Christ. And that is who the Samaritan runs to. He runs to the true priest for his healing, to declare his power. The true priest, the one who is on his way to the place where he will be tortured and killed and mocked for the spiritual leprosy that we all have. And what does he require of us? Nothing. He requires nothing of us, just as he required nothing of the Samaritan, nothing of those ten men. And we are not too far gone for that healing to occur in our lives. So what are we called to? We are called, each of us individually, to that before and after moment, that definitive time on Houston where you realize what a carve is, that definitive time when you see who Jesus is, that he is the true priest. He is the true teacher. And an encounter with him sets us onto a path that is something entirely new, just as the Samaritan was set on a path that was entirely new. And as the leper was removed from his community and excluded from fellowship, he regained it by the healing Jesus gave. We are no different. We are excluded from fellowship with God. But through the work of Christ, we receive entrance into his community. Yes, we have fellowship with each other, but more importantly, we have fellowship with him. We are no longer the outcasts sitting on the edge of town, begging from anybody who might come by. Instead, we are invited into the fullness of community and relationship with Jesus. And he is willing to go out of his way to accomplish those purposes. Remember what I said about how this is kind of a geographically weird thing where he's in the, he, he goes out of his way to be in this place to do this act in this podunk town that nobody's heard of. He went out of his way to accomplish his purposes. He went out of his way to accomplish his purposes for us. He came to earth and went to Jerusalem for us. He went out of his way just as he went out of his way to meet those 10 men. And so in closing, as we consider this story, what of the other nine men? You know, is the story that the Samaritan's the good one because he turned back and thanked Jesus and the nine were bad? I really don't think that that's the point of this story. The nine reached out to Jesus. They declared him the Messiah and they trusted in him for their healing and they did what Christ asked them to do. And yet, they lacked that gratitude. They lacked that thanksgiving in the moment that the Samaritan had. But did Christ's work stop being true for them? No, it continued. They remained healed. 
they remained transformed as they went on their way. Christ's mercy is given to us even in our lack of thanksgiving, in our lack of obedience, in our lack of gratitude, in our lack of doing the things he calls us to do. His mercy is still offered to us. That is the power and the good news of the gospel, that it is not about you. This is not about you guys. This is not about me. The gospel is not about what we bring to the table because we don't bring anything to the table. These lepers brought nothing to the table and even after being healed, they were still willing to walk away from the one who had just healed them. But they remained healed. Christ's mercy to us extends when we don't turn to him. So, why don't we work on being like the one? Why don't we be like the Samaritan? Don't just take the gift Christ offers. Let us never take the gift Christ offers and just walk with our eyes down and continue on with our lives. Instead, let us be transformed by our encounter with the true priest who loves us and who has mercy on us. And as he says in verse 19, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well because of what Christ has done. That is the gospel. Would you pray with us? Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power that it has. And we thank you for this story, this kind of funky, little, weird story. Um, But it is a picture of the gospel. It is a picture of the fact that we come to you empty-handed. We come to you as undone people, with spiritual leprosy, people who are sick and in need of healing. And we cry out, Master, have mercy on us. And you do. And you have mercy on us day after day. Your mercies are new every morning, even when we turn our backs on you. We thank you for that great and profound truth. And we ask that our response would be like the Samaritan. That we would run to you. We would kick up the dust around us and we would fall on our face and proclaim that you are our God and live our lives in light of that truth. And it is in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.